Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the Supreme Court's decision on ending affirmative action in college admission in cases brought by a right-wing front group, SFFA, Students for Fair Admissions, and look into yet another case of Supreme Court shopping to get rulings that the right-wing majority on the court are itching to take up with a predetermined outcome. We will note the powerful dissents from Justice Sotomayor and Katanji Brown-Jackson, who accused the majority of, quote, let them eat cake obliviousness, and discuss a court that President Biden said today in response to a question from a reporter asking whether the court was rogue that, quote, this is not a normal court. Joining us is Catherine Frankie, a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University, among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion. She is the author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition. Then we'll speak with Kevin Kumashiro, who feels that Asian students were used by right-wing activists in a decision he sees as perpetuating the myth of colorblindness, that race no longer matters and that democracy is somehow advanced when we refuse to attend to long-standing and pervasive issues of racial injustices. Moreover, the decision furthers a narrowed vision of higher education focusing on individual merit rather than the common good. An internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation, educational equity and social justice, and the former dean at the University of San Francisco School of Education, Kevin's books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. Then finally, we will speak with Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize winning journalist, author and on-air correspondent. He currently works as a contributing editor at the Marshall Project and a journalist in residence at the City University of New York, Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting in 2016 for the creation and analysis of a real-time database to track fatal police shootings in the United States and his project Murder with Impunity, a look at unsolved homicides in major American cities, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2019. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and a New Era in America's Racial Justice Movement. And his latest book just out is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for Background Briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising, as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. 
And joining us now is Catherine Frankie, who's a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University. Among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion, she's the author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition. Welcome to Background Briefing, Catherine Frankie. Thank you, Ian. It's great to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Catherine. And the decisions were not unexpected, but nevertheless, they will have clear consequences. A 6-3 to three decision on the University of North Carolina and a 6-2 to two decision on Harvard's admissions. Uh, Katanji Brown-Jackson had to recuse herself from that because of her having been on the university's board of overseers. So what's your sense then of whether this is some kind of barometer on race relations in this country? Because my understanding is that affirmative action is pretty unpopular across the board, even among minorities. Well, affirmative action, first of all, is a very broad category, and it's a, it's a term that has been um, well captured by the right as a kind of epithet. Um, and they've, they've imbued it with a great deal of negative connotations. But affirmative action doesn't really mean anything specifically. Um, uh, and so what this case was about is actually something quite narrow. It's whether colleges and universities can ask students to check boxes about their racial identity on their application uh, applications to, to for admission. Are you black? Are you white? What do you identify racially? And then use those check marks as a factor in um, making admissions decisions. And what the Supreme Court said is considering people's race, their skin color, their national origin, whatever, is has the effect of basically stereotyping them, of grouping them into large racial groups and assuming certain things about them that may or may not be true in their case. And what, what is it that you're actually getting when you get X number of black students, X number of Latinx students? Um, and so there's a kind of idea about what race is and what it means that underwrites this decision. And the court says you just can't admit students based on these gross generalizations of being black, being Latin, being Asian, etc. Well, the dissent, and, and this unfortunately seems to be the pattern with a, a minority of so-called liberal judges versus this conservative or far right wing or however you want to describe the current majority on the Supreme Court, and you invariably get very eloquent dissents, but you just sort of end up sort of wringing your hands. I mean, we've got Justice Sotomayor saying that this decision further entrenches racial inequality in education, the very foundation of our democratic government and pluralistic society. The devastating impact of the decision cannot be overstated, and... Contantia Brown-Jackson said in criticizing the majority, said this is let them eat cake obliviousness. So do you detect what I'm talking about here, Catherine, the, this sort of disconnect between the majority who hand down opinions and barely explain them, but they have the power and they have the numbers, and then you have extremely eloquent rebuttals or dissents from the minority but isn't anything more than hand-wringing? Well, I think in many respects, the majority and the dissent are talking about race very differently. So in, 
in some respects, this case is about what does it mean for race to play a role in the application for a higher education process? And, and the, the majority treats race in individualized terms. The skin color of this person, the national origin of this person. And as, um, as the Chief Justice says, um, the touchstone of an individual's identity is not challenges bested, skills built, or lessons learned, but the color of their skin under this, um, under the policies that are being challenged. And I think you've got a very different idea of what it means to take race into account in the dissent. In that sense, they're thinking about societal forms of race and racism, what race means and how it cashes out in American society, which means that students of color typically have had fewer advantages and opportunities and and less quality education than have white students. And so taking race into account in the application process is accounting for the fact that you have an applicant pool that is already poisoned by the way in which racism is baked into American education. And so the taking race into account in the way that they value or evaluate those applicants is to, in a way, account for or accommodate the way that racism um, lands some of the Black or Latinx students um, unable or uh, uh, less qualified along certain metrics like the SAT, which has been well shown, these standardized tests, well shown to have racial bias built into it, yet schools continue to rely on it. Um, so taking race into account means very different things for the majority, the individual's race, and the, and the dissent, the idea of soci- what race means in the society. And that, that sense, they're really talking past one another. Well, of course, the majority decision was uh, written by the Chief Justice John Roberts, and he's famous or infamous, depending upon your point of view, in striking down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act and yes. saying at the time that essentially racial discrimination is over, and that's proven to be desperately and sadly wrong. He also has said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. But nevertheless, does this decision make it easier for those with racist motives to discriminate on the basis of race? What do you think? Absolutely. Absolutely, it does. Um, It makes it easier for institutions to perpetuate a kind of racial bias, and it makes it much more difficult for us uh, and, uh, and institutions to challenge the ways in which racial bias is sort of baked into almost every institutional setting in the U.S. And uh, accounting for race as a way to dismantle racism is a well-known strategy in every other developed country in the world. In this sense, the U.S. is behind, way behind the curve in what uh, equality means and what it means to deny people access to fundamental institutional resources on the basis of their identity. You look at international law, you look at regional uh, human rights and equal rights treaties uh, uh, around the globe, and a substantive approach to race and racism and equality is what you see everywhere, that we should look at outcomes, not just inputs. And in the U.S., all we do is look at inputs. Is race being used? Is somebody bigoted or biased against people on the basis of their race? That's what you have to show in order to um, challenge a particular institutional allocation of resources 
Whereas in other parts of the world, we look at um, uh, the, the results of those processes and how they may not on their face implicate race or sex for that matter, but to have the effect of excluding people on the basis of their race or sex or other uh, kind of identity. Um, and that is a more modern way of thinking about equality. Um, and unfortunately, the United States uh, is trapped in a very 19th century approach to what the equal protection of the laws means and how it um, should be implemented, particularly in academic settings. But there's another disturbing aspect of the Supreme Court that seems to raise its head in this, these decisions that just came down today. And that is the Supreme Court shopping on the part of right-wing activists. This case was brought to the court by a group called Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA. And it's headed by a right-wing activist, Edward Blum. And mm -hmm. it's the same methodology, is it not, from Citizens United, which is then brought by another right-wing activist. And it's Citizens United, and of course, has had an incredibly profound effect on our our politics uh, and money in politics and all the dark money, in fact, <laughs> that mm -hmm. Leonard Leo was able to deploy to get these Federalists on the, on the Supreme Court and create this six to three majority. So is that a part of this mix here in, in your mind, uh, Catherine? Well, the opponents of certain constitutional rights have been very effective uh, in creating new associations, membership organizations, entities to challenge policies they don't like. The same was true in the Dobbs case last year, the abortion case, that the, the group of physicians, the sort of alliance of physicians that, um, that challenged um, uh, Roe versus Wade uh, had been founded about 10 minutes before the lawsuit was filed. It, it did not have any kind of legacy existence. It was formed for the purposes of challenging Roe versus Wade. Um, and so this is not unique to the school setting in this affirmative action context that the right wing is uh, creating organizations that become an institutional vehicle for making a certain kind of constitutional argument. And in those cases, the court has been pretty lenient in applying what we call standing doctrine, whether those institutions have actually suffered a um, legitimate and real constitutional injury such that they can be the ones to challenge that constitutional rule. Um, and some court watchers would say that this, this very conservative Supreme Court uh, is somewhat biased in the way they apply their standing rules, that they're, they're very lenient with right-wing groups and they're really stringent with more progressive or, say, let's say, environmental groups or reproductive justice groups um, when they want to challenge policies that they don't like, and particularly during the Trump administration, but not only. So the, um, the, the politics of this Supreme Court is visible not only in the outcomes um, on, the, on the constitutional questions, but also in who they're allowing to raise their hand to raise a constitutional claim. And that is something that is very troubling in terms of the legitimacy of this court going forward. Well, that's the part that I think is very suspicious, is what they choose to bring up, and that is their choice. And there is this phenomenon of Supreme Court justice shopping, not just Citizens United, but you can go back to Heller as well. So, yes. And as you point out, there may be countervailing activist groups on the left, but they don't... Well, we, not... Go ahead. 
we have a de- we have a decision coming down tomorrow, the 303 Creative versus Elmas case. And this is a case having to do with a, a woman who was starting a, a website business where she would design wedding websites for people to talk about their wedding and invite people to the wedding. And she she didn't want to do it for um, same-sex couples, only for different sex couples. And um, she knew that the local Human Rights Commission um, – she suspected would had a rule that said you can't discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation when you run a business, which she was doing. And she filed a lawsuit before she had even started the business, claiming that she would be injured by a um, uh, a rule that said she would have to provide services to same-sex couples. And that's one of the questions in that case, and we'll see what the how the court deals with it tomorrow. Is is that kind of what we call pre-enforcement action? a legitimate way to challenge these um, uh, equality uh, laws where you actually haven't been harmed yet. You just want a ruling from the court that those laws don't apply to you, either because of your speech rights, or your religious rights, or the rights and interests of white people, which is the, the state, what's at stake in this affirmative action case. Um, so it's a trend across um, subject areas that, that, that the harms to the privileged people are extremely legible to the courts of, oh, no, that's a terrible thing. We ought, to, we ought to get involved very early. And the harms to less advantaged people, whether it's around reproductive rights or people of color or lesbian, gay or trans people, uh, they have to show a very um, ripe, as we say, or, or very salient harm before the court even sees it, let alone provides a remedy for it. So just in the last couple of minutes then, Catherine, when I mentioned earlier about uh, affirmative action being unpopular, in 2020, when Donald Trump was on the ballot in California, the Democratic Party got behind Proposition 16. They mm-hmm. outspent their opponents 19 to 1, but they lost badly with more than 57% of uh, California voters, which tend to be liberal and Democratic, opposing it. So mm-hmm. does that mean then that if the right has been able to tarnish the notion of affirmative action and make it a dirty word, uh, is there a better way then to frame this issue for the left? Well, marketing is always important, no matter what campaign you're working on. And to the extent that affirmative action or what they used to call is special rights, that certain minorities enjoyed special rights. That was, that was uh, a term used earlier that also had a lot of traction. Um, then those terms are ones that advocates on the left should walk away from and find other terms. I think diversity is a term that gains more support generally um, uh, and and terms like that that are not about um, disadvantaging certain types of people um, who would otherwise be eligible for, say, admissions to school or other benefits, but are about creating a certain kind of workforce or student body that most people would agree with. So Every um, civil rights movement or um, civil wrongs movement, for that matter, um, uh, has to think about how they brand and frame um, what they're fighting for and what are the the sorts of terms that one might use in order to advance those causes. And I think affirmative action has been very effectively captured by the right as an evil. And um, But I would say that this case isn't really about affirmative action. Um, uh, the right would want to call it that, but I think it's much more about how to create diverse student bodies based on a whole range of factors, not exclusively race, but a whole range of factors um, where race is one of the things in the mix. 
And race in it, thinking about it in a complicated way, not just um, checking the box sort of way, is what I think schools are really trying to pull off. Well, Catherine, Frankie, I thank you so much for joining us here today. It's my great pleasure. Thanks so much for including me in your in this discussion. Well, thank you for joining us, Catherine. And again, I've been speaking with Catherine Frankie, who's a professor of law and director of the Center for Gender and Sexuality Law at Columbia University, among the nation's leading scholars writing on law, sexuality, race, and religion. She is the author of Repair, Redeeming the Promise of Slavery's Abolition. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back discussing how Asian students were used by right-wing activists in a decision that perpetuates the myth of colorblindness. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Kevin Kumashiro, who is an internationally recognized expert on educational policy, school reform, teacher preparation, and educational equity and social justice. The former dean at the University of San Francisco School of Education. His books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. Welcome to Background Briefing, Kevin Kumashiro. It's great to be back, Ian. Nice to speak with you. Good to hear from you again, uh, Kevin. And tell me, what do you make of today's uh, Supreme Court decision on getting rid of affirmative action in colleges, and not just in public colleges like Harvard and University of North Carolina, which are being sued, but across the board in both public and private education? It's not a surprise, but nevertheless, it has serious consequences, does it not? Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's not a surprise. Everyone was expecting this was going to happen. We even saw hints of this very strategy of using Asian Americans as plaintiffs to try to overturn the previous three Supreme Court cases. We saw hints of that in Alito's dissent back in 2016 in the Fisher versus UT Austin case. So, yes, everyone expected that this was going to happen with the ultra-conservative Supreme Court that we have now. Um, And I think the implications are going to absolutely be profound. I mean, we can look to several places where bans on affirmative action in college admissions were put into place and then what happened at the universities. I'm thinking about California following the 1996 Prop 209 ban on affirmative action, and I'm also thinking of Michigan, University of Michigan, 2006. Same thing where we saw um, the percentages, the numbers of Black, of Latinx, and of Indigenous students plummet um, as the numbers of white and Asian American students went up. And I think that universities have been bracing themselves for this decision, and some states, as we already know, um, as we know, some states already have bans on affirmative action. So we have lots of, you know, um, efforts to learn from in terms of how universities can maintain or even continue to increase the racial diversity of their student population. But it is absolutely an uphill struggle, and this decision will simply make it that much more difficult to serve um, the diversity within uh, our student population. 
So you're the co-founder of a nationwide network, Education Deans for Justice and Equity. What are you hearing from the education community about this? What ways and means can people fight back against this reactionary Supreme Court? Yeah, you know, I think there's um, both a short-term and a long-term strategy that folks are trying to make sense of and put into place. And I feel like the short-term strategy is we need to find I mean, we need to continue to grapple with what this means, and we need to continue to fight for better policies where we can actually look at race if you want to address racism. (laughs) Like, you can't address racial inequity without looking at race. So, I mean, I think we're going to need to continue to have that battle. And one of the short-term struggles is to come up with alternative ways that use proxies that, in other words, things that aren't specifically race but still help us to Um, bring in a more racially diverse population of students. You know, social class tightly correlates with race, region and neighborhoods tightly do as well. Um, And even like some strategies like Texas, which was the previous case, um, you know, there are ways where universities will sort of accept, say, the top 10% of every graduating class. And given how racially segregated schools are, that actually is a way to um, try to increase racial diversity within your student population. So we have ways like that, and I think that that is going to be, to me, the short-term strategy. Is universities are going to have to continue to experiment with this if they believe that their role is to educate the larger population, address racial inequities, and serve the greater good. But I think that there's a larger struggle as well, and I feel like this is if anything, you could call the silver lining in this crisis, which is, you know, every crisis gives us an opportunity to pause and to think about what's the future that we want to build towards. And I would, I and many would argue that affirmative action was never the the magic bullet. It was one of many strategies that we needed to engage in. And one of the things that I think we haven't done enough of is think about the purpose of universities. You know, even with affirmative action, we're still buying into the story that universities are preparing individuals to succeed and um, affirmative action is one more way to determine who's the most deserving and or most qualified or most accomplished. And I would say in addition to preparing individuals to flourish, I think universities have this larger purpose of strengthening communities, of advancing democracy, and of serving the common good. And I think if we think about the purpose of education as that, then who is getting into our universities should be a different conversation. We should be looking at a different set of criteria than simply who is the best, who is the most accomplished, or who has the most potential um, to succeed. Well, in terms of race blindness, which is what the Supreme Court is now trying to tell us, I mean, it's similar to when Chief Justice Roberts struck down Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act. He said, oh, you know, we don't, there's no more racial discrimination, so we don't need it. I mean, it's the same kind of blindness here where this, the Chief Justice John Roberts was, was, you know, it was his decision, or he wrote the decision in the 6-3 to decision, striking down affirmative action. And Roberts has famously said the way to stop discriminating on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. But what he and his colleagues, uh, these far-right jurists from the Federalist Society handpicked by Leonard Leo, what they're doing, in fact, is making it easier for those with racist motives to discriminate on the basis of race, right? 
Absolutely. I mean, I, I think that we we are in this moment where many people are buying into this narrative that folks like Roberts are putting out there, that any attention to race is a form of racism. And that's simply, you know, it's not true, right? There are ways of paying into paying attention to race that furthers racism, absolutely, when you act in a racist way. But you cannot address racial inequities without attending to race. And so I think that one of the you know, one of the struggles that we're going to have right now is really trying to name the ways that racism exists that we don't often recognize. And, you know, race plays out in education institutions all the time. And pretending that it's not there doesn't get rid of it. It actually normalizes it. And, um, you know, I would say one of the ironies, for example, about this case is that the ways that Asian Americans are positioned in this case is a very racist strategy, right? It dates back to the 1960s, the civil rights movement, when, you know, what was one of the most powerful narratives coming out by those who opposed the civil rights movement? Well, it was the model minority story that basically said, Look, Asian Americans are the model for all other minority groups. Why? Because through their hard work and perseverance, they've made it. They've achieved the American dream. And isn't this evidence that there cannot therefore be um, structural systemic racism? Because look, one group is making it, and maybe if all of you others would try as hard, you too could make it, right? And there was lots of evidence that Asian Americans weren't successful in all the ways that the media wanted to pay attention to, but that's the narrative that stuck. It was a very compelling sort of framing that gets us to turn away from, to not pay attention to structural racism. And that's what's happening right now as well, right? People are saying, well, Asian Americans are the ones who are making it. They're the ones who are going to get hurt by or are being hurt by affirmative action policies. Asian Americans have long played this wedge role. They've been positioned as a wedge that prevents cross-racial solidarity and coalition building. And that's part of our job is to kind of name these narratives that are distracting us or that are disinforming us and that are preventing us from seeing what's really going on so that we can build better solutions. I mean, interestingly, right, education is one of the key strategies that's needed right now so that we can really name the moment. So... Of course, there were two decisions, uh, 6-3 against the University of North Carolina and uh, 6-2 against Harvard, but they were brought by this group called Students for Fair Admissions, SFFA. The guy that runs that and funds that is a right-wing activist, and this so this smacks of the same technique that they used to Supreme Court shop cases in the very devastating case of Citizens United, that was a, a small right-wing lobbying outfit that brought that case and had, it had massive ramifications for our politics because of the unlimited amount of money now pouring in that it actually was used to change the Supreme Court through this dark money of Leonard Lear. So this is another case where right-wing activists have managed to get before this court, and the court, of course, clearly chose to take on these cases for political reasons, they also, in their this SFFA group, in their arguments, they used material from this guy Unz, UNZ, this wealthy reactionary Californian political activist who's an anti-Semite and a Holocaust denier. So they seem like a pretty unsavory bunch. 
So you can't dress up all of this John Roberts arguments without recognising who's behind the suit and how it got to the Supreme Court. Absolutely. That's such a helpful, helpful background. Yeah, Students for Fair Admissions, Edward Blum, the man who sort of is the sort of brains behind that, was absolutely deeply involved in other anti-affirmative action um, efforts, including the Texas case that we saw in 2016. And one of the things that um, you're reminding me is that, you know, money matters in Supreme Court, but money matters also and the interconnectedness among all of these well-funded right-wing organizations is um, part of the bigger picture that we need to understand with education. So the attacks on affirmative action, absolutely well-funded, um, s- strong backings by conservative organizations. But one of the things I like to remind myself is that when we begin to connect the dots, just as you're connecting the dots with other right-wing efforts like Holocaust denial and racism, I think about how some of the same people who are pushing for, say, vouchers and school choice and privatization are the same groups that are pushing the censorship bills, the book bans, the don't say gay, the anti-diversity equity um, inclusion initiatives, right? There's a lot of interconnection across all of these that even at the bigger level are about undermining democratic processes because they're also the same right-wing foundations, think tanks, media groups, advocacy organizations that are pushing for things like voter disenfranchisement, that are pushing for things like um, reducing the community input in decision-making regarding education, that are involved in things like redistricting and, you know, um, sort of gerrymandering. I mean, the attacks on democratic institutions writ large are not unconnected from the attacks on education. It's many of the same players. And I think that's what begins, that's what should help us to see that the attacks on education um, really have a much larger agenda that is about undermining democracy. So just in closing then, Kevin, I don't want to leave our audience in despair because this is really a real gut punch to a lot of people who believe in racial equity and in multiracial democracy. And again, I think that the heart of all of this is this white rage that's taken over the country that Donald Trump is the champion for as a kind of fascist leader running under the banner of white supremacy. What advice do you have to our listeners? Yeah, well, the context of fascism and totalitarianism is a really helpful, I think, um, framing of this moment. And it reminds me of the power of social movements. And that's what gives me hope. You know, I think about, for example, the early, the sort of the first half of the 20th century. What was happening as we saw the rise of fascism and totalitarianism? Well, what we, what we saw in some countries was a strong right populism, right? A strong kind of conservative movement that would enable fascist regimes like in Germany and You also saw, however, in other countries, the existence of strong left populism. Like, think about in this country, what was happening in the the first few decades of the 1900s is you saw left populism, you saw new labor being um, 
sort of growing. And these were two very powerful forces that helped make possible not just the resistance of fascism, but the move towards things like New Deal, uh, the New Deal kind of legislation and um, policies that came out of the Roosevelt administration. These were not simply because of Hitler or Roosevelt. They're not simply because of one leader. They're actually because you have the people acting collectively to tell a different story about what could what the world could be looking like. That's sort of the definition to me of social movements, right? Coming together, acting collectively to imagine a different world and to build towards that. Um, and so I feel like this is really no different. This is a moment when we could go in different directions where you have competing social movements. And our job is to continue to find ways to come together, to work collectively as we build towards the the vision that we believe um, needs to define who we are. Well, Kevin Kumashira, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Kevin Kumashiro, who is an internationally recognized expert on education policy, school reform, teacher preparation, and educational equity and social justice, the former dean at the University of San Francisco School of Education. His books include Troubling Education and Teaching Towards Democracy. We're going to take a brief station break and back speaking with the Pulitzer Prize winning author of the new book just out, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Wesley Lowry, a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author, and on-air correspondent. He currently works as a contributing editor at the Marshall Project and a journalist in residence at the City University of New York's Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He led the Washington Post team that was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for national reporting in 2016 for the creation and analysis of a real-time database to track fatal police shootings in the United States and his project Murder with Impunity, a look into unsolved homicides in major American cities, was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize in 2019. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore and a New Era in American Racial Justice Movement. And his latest book just out is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Welcome to Background Briefing, Wesley Lowry. Thanks so much for having me. Well, thanks for joining us on this day when the Supreme Court brought down a decision, uh, not unexpected, but nevertheless tragic in many respects, basically suggesting that we are a colorblind society and that we don't need affirmative action in education. And in dissent, Katanji Brown-Jackson said that it was a sort of let-them-eat-cake attitude on the part of the six right-wing justices so would you consider what happened today at Wesley to be white lash? Well, not exactly, but, it, but it's similar. You know, white lash, as I define it, is how over the course of our histories, our, our nation's history, we begin as a nation with an explicit racialized caste system. 
And over our history, we see movements and actions towards creating a multiracial democracy. And each time there is a step towards multiracial democracy, we see a violent backlash to it. Now, there, there is what uh, historian Carol Anderson has termed white rage, uh, this idea that through policies, through systems, through institutions, that um, in response to black advancement or brown advancement, we see these types of uh, backlashes. And, and I, I certainly think that, um, that this would qualify or count as that. But I think all of it comes in the context of a world and reality in which um, we have the perception of advancement um, of people who have previously been oppressed. And that perception leads the majority white population to believe uh, they, in fact, are an oppressed group of people and to actively work to undermine those steps towards multiracial democracy. In your book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress, it starts basically with the backlash to the election of Barack Obama and essentially yep. showing how the forces of white power retaliated against Obama's victory and, in a sense, paved the way for Donald Trump who is the president of White Lash, is he not? Certainly. I mean, it's unsurprising that the election of the black Americans, which in many ways um, is a key achievement of our era of multiracial democracy, it is not surprising that that would result in the rise of a nativist movement of disaffected, anxious white Americans. Uh, when you look at Donald Trump's uh, electoral coalition. It's almost exclusively white, um, despite a diversity of geography, um, a diversity of political background, a diversity of economic means. And his political platform and, and ideology is explicitly a play towards racial uh, grievance, white racial grievance. And so, like I said, with the benefit of a little hindsight, it's not a particularly surprising what came and what happened. But it seems that Donald Trump started his campaign well before he came down the escalator and, and made racist remarks against Mexicans. He started his campaign with the Bertha movement. And it seems to me that that was all about giving white racists and people, white Americans with a grievance, permission to be able to speak out openly. In other words, they came out from under a rock. I mean, after going back to the 60s with the civil rights movement through the 70s and the 80s and 90s, etc., there was a, seemed to be a consensus that it wasn't acceptable to be openly racist. Mm -hmm. And now, of course, it's, it's even metastasized even more with Ron DeSantis running against wokeness, which is code, it would seem, for again an appeal to white grievance, you know, that let us, you know, speak openly and use our hate speech as opposed to feel censored by the woke. Well, beyond that, I mean, Ron DeSantis came out and said he would try to get rid of birthright citizenship, which um, one is codified in the Constitution, so not something he could even do, but, but secondarily, it was something that was a remedy to the Dred Scott decision, to Plessy versus Ferguson, in which the Supreme Court ruled that black Americans are not citizens, right? And so, so we think about it. Why would you 
declare such a thing, such a policy prerogative. The reason you do that is because you're attempting to play to white grievance, that you believe there are enough disaffected white Americans who are going to rally around the idea that American citizenship is for them and is not for uh, these other groups of people. So is this a referendum on the better angels, as Abraham Lincoln referred to? I was quite surprised yesterday by the remark that Liz Cheney made at the Aspen Institute where she said, you know, the American people have got stopped voting for idiots. Are we becoming an idiocracy? And is there is that a combination? In other words, the lack of awareness and the lack of education, has it has it morphed into this kind of sewer of hatred? I mean, I, I, I do think that that premises that it was not that previously. And I'm just not sure that we're going to find a time in our history where our populace was less bigoted, less, prejudic- less prejudicial, less inclined to following charlatans who are disattached from facts. Um, and so I'm not sure about that, right? What is true is that we are in a moment that because of this grievance, People are willing to lean into and embrace these types of ideas. But again, I, we've, we've been in moments like this before. Well, it does seem, I don't know whether you followed the work of Ian Henny Lopez at um, mm-hmm. Berkeley, but do you accept that premise that in many ways pitting people against each other on racial grounds is a way for the sort of oligarchy to divide and conquer, that most of our political energy is focused on guns and abortion and other issues that don't get to the heart of what normal politics are about, at least in terms of social democracy, where you vote for politicians who deliver government services. So we're off fighting these other battles, these culture wars, and Ian Haney Lopez's argument is that uh, this serves the interests of the oligarchy because the last thing that people are talking about is income inequality and who's really you know, stealing the country blind. I, I mean, I think that there's a lot of factual premises to what Ian lays out. I mean, um, it's unquestionably true that race is codified in the law in the United States of America as a means of sowing division between the white indentured servants and the black enslaved uh, to maintain a monopoly on power that was held by the colonial governors and the aristocrats, right? And so in that sense, it's unquestionably true that much of this operates along class lines. Um, but, but, I, but I do also think that there is a, you know, I, I don't think we can be, dismissive of the very real stakes uh, and real human harms that are done by things that we might describe as culture wars, right? Like gay marriage matters. Um, and and wh- whether my state or my country um, allows the equal protection under law of a certain group of people or does not, is not inconsequential to my daily life, right? And so I think that we can hold you know, multiple truths at once. But it does seem that this reactionary movement in response to any progress in terms of multiracial democracy in America, 
if you go back to Ronald Reagan, he made his announcement down in Mississippi, and mm. he essentially ran on a platform of trying to, you know, bring back this atavistic age of Ozzie and Harriet of the 1950s, where blacks and Hispanics were invisible, and now we've got Donald Trump, you know, being explicitly, in effect, racist and running a an almost a fascist-like campaign after the day that he was indicted and arrested down in Florida. He went up, made this extraordinary speech at his golf club in Bedminster that was textbook Mussolini, and that's what we're faced with. So is this a problem in the sense that this active minority that want minority rule that were responsible, that showed their violence on January the 6th, are they simply a more vocal and active minority? And are the rest of us trying to hold on to multiracial racial democracy here in the United States? Are we too passive? Are we not meeting this challenge? How do you see it, Wesley? Well, those, those groups, the, the minority is empowered by their collaborators, right? Donald Trump is elected with a governing uh, majority of the electorate, you know, and, and not every one of those people is a January 6th insurrectionist, right? Mm-hmm. But every one of those people who votes for him or his platform, his party, the party that he leads and is and remains the de facto leader of, um, is empowering those elements. And so, you know, I, I think that we can, I think the media, we've for a very long time, following the Trump election, we're caught in these debates of like exactly what percentage of these people are bigots and exactly what, I actually think it's largely inconsequential, right? Each person who grants the power of their vote and their political support and their, and their financial backing to uh, a party led by this person is empowering the, the platform of that person. Well, 84 million people voted for Trump in the last election, and I understand that the value of Fox News to the Republican Party to some extent, because, you know, their footprint is not that great, you know, even though they have a lot of influence, but they have brought people into the political system. Would that explain why there's so many people voting Republican, particularly flocking to the banner of this disgraced serial criminal and possibly traitor? Well, I, I, just, I just think that there's, I mean, there are any number of reasons. I mean, I think the bigger reason or bigger explanation is because 84 million people want what Donald Trump is saying he's going to do. You, you know, I, I think that, I think part of what's hard, it's unquestionably true that you have news organizations or you have organizations like Fox News that, you, you know, broadcast propaganda and, and form and foment this type of derision and division, but they're playing to prejudices that already exist within the populace. Um, and that there are any number of presidents across our history who managed to get elected uh, a very similar platforms long before uh, Fox News existed. And so while it's both true that organizations like Fox and other people in this right-wing uh, information ecosystem are poisoning the water, uh, there's plenty of poison already in the lake. So could there be then a motivating and organizing kind of force to activate a a silent majority to oppose this movement towards minority rule? 
or, or tyranny of the minority? Or am I just assuming something that doesn't exist? It was 84 million for Trump, 87, what was it? Biden won by 7 million. So that's the margin we've got from the last election. Sure. I mean, which is, which is a statistical toss-up, which is even, 50-50. You know, in a country of, in a country of 300 million people, 7 million is, is a rounding error. And so, you know, to, to, so I don't know that I would even necessarily declare that there is such a silent majority of people. Uh, the, that our elections, our recent elections, have shown a pretty, a pretty stark and pretty even partisan divide. Well, the most frightening aspect of all of this, though, is the extent to which white supremacists and neo-Nazis have come out from under a rock. And your book profiles lots of hideous racial incidents that took place after Obama was elected, but it also goes into the Trump era in terms of, of Charlottesville. And, you know, when you have the head of the FBI saying it's the most challenging situation that America has in terms of law and order, and I recall that after, on the very day after January the 6th, then-candidate Biden, now President Biden, broadcast a really powerful statement saying, you know, this the lack of law enforcement response to this would have been the opposite had this been Black Lives Matter, for example, been behind it as opposed to this uh, angry white mob. So mm -hmm. is there any way to stop this? I mean, it's an adjunct to what my concern about a drift towards American fascism, that we already know who the stormtroopers are. We've seen them, and they're alive and well, and they're organized, and Trump is their candidate, and he's threatening to call them out uh, to save his own skin. Certainly. Well, I think that what we've seen across our institutions is a failure to defend multiracial democracy. And I think that's a failure across all the institutions, whether it be the media, whether it be law enforcement, whether it be our political parties um, that have allowed for the rise of these folks by not taking these threats seriously. Um, and, and so what we see is that when you have political leadership um, and powerful people given massive, powerful platform who are willing to play to the most base prejudices, it plays into the hands of such forces in our country who would preach a race war and who would return us to an explicitly white supremacist society. And so what we've seen in this era uh, since the election of a black president, has been an open bigotry from a non-insignificant portion of our political spectrum that has played into the hands of these violent forces who would, who again, would overthrow our multiracial democracy. And, and, and I think that, unfortunately, we haven't seen that taken seriously. I mean, to President, then-President-elect Biden's point, there is no way that a group of black activists could plan a coup in public the way that January 6th was done, uh, without people ending up in handcuffs, if not worse. Um, and yet, our institution of law enforcement did not take these threats seriously, and I think there's a, a reason to ask why. So, again, is there a way that the composition of police and uh, even the military itself can become, it is already multiracial in many ways, particularly the military. It's, I guess, arguably it's the last, if not the only meritocracy we have in America. So 
Is there any corrective here, short of a bloodbath, which may well be looming? Oh, I mean, I, I think the, I think we have to name and acknowledge the reality in which we live, and, and we have to correct our public square and our information ecosystem to be one that does not tolerate such open prejudice um, and such dehumanizing attacks on our fellow Americans. And as long as that exists, as long as that is allowed, uh, we're going to end up in this space, we're going to be in this space where people are imperiled. Um, and again, I think that does fall to us that, that our public square, our public space is something that is curated. It's something that we facilitate via our institutions. And, and it's something, again, we have to take, we have to take seriously. Um, no, I mean, no amount of diversity within policing can make you take something seriously or not. Um, and, and I think that, that, um, that we have to decide as a country to see clearly that there are forces that are actively threatening our multiracial democracy and that there are others who are empowering those forces and that we have to act accordingly. Well, just in closing, though, I mean, how do you stop people like Trump from and DeSantis from the hate speech, even if it's somewhat coded through wokeness? I mean, I'm sort of tired of calling them names because I find them so frightening. I'd like to be able to do something more about it than call them names. Sure. I mean, well, but you you don't... You, you don't pour tens and hundreds of millions of dollars into their political campaigns, which are mainstream political institutions. Did you don't hand them a microphone and give them 90 minutes live on television? You don't. In many ways, this cat is very far out of the bag. That uh, we have built such figures, we can't now defang them. They exist. They have power. We've embedded in them, um, but they did not always. Right. We, we, the collective, we made a lot of decisions about how we were going to handle Donald Trump and we were to handle him as an entertaining sideshow that was going to make a lot of people a lot of money. Um, then they, and then other people handled him once he took actual power, handled him as a inconvenient, uh, but, but, um, but in many cases, advantageous political messenger for them and their own pet causes. Right. There are many people who have all types of things to say about Donald Trump who are very happy today about the fall of affirmative action or who are very happy about the fall of of uh, medical care and access to abortion. Right. There are many people who were very happy to make deals and bargains with someone who was leading a nativist movement if they got what they thought they wanted. Well, Wesley, Larry, I thank you very much for joining us and I appreciate your latest book, American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. Perfect. Thank you so much for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Wesley Lowry, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, author, and on-air correspondent. He currently works as a contributing editor at the Marshall Project and a journalist in residence at the City University of New York's Newmark Graduate School of Journalism. He led the Washington Post team that was awarded the Pulitzer Prize for National Reporting in 2016 for the creation and analysis of a real-time database to track fatal police shootings in the United States, and his project Murder with Impunity, a look at unsolved homicides in major American cities, was a finalist for the the Pulitzer Prize in 2019. He's the author of the New York Times bestseller, They Can't Kill Us All, Ferguson, Baltimore, and the New Era of American Racial Justice Movement. And his latest book just out is American White Lash, A Changing Nation and the Cost of Progress. 
This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again on Sunday with another background briefing. Bye for now. Disappeared by heaven.